Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Ellie Thiel, who is the director of our Infectious Diseases Serology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic, and she has been a repeat guest on this podcast. It's great to have you back with us, Ellie. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Glad to be back. So Dr. Thiel has joined us in the past to talk about COVID, lots of COVID, right? Tick-borne diseases. But now we get to talk about something completely different and very interesting, and that is endemic fungal infections in North America, and specifically blastomycosis and histoplasmosis. Maybe we'll just start with the basics. Dr. Thiel, can you tell us a little bit about these? What are they and where are they endemic in the United States and North America? Yeah, sure. So these are both dimorphic fungal pathogens. The easiest way to remember what dimorphic means, it, I mean, the word itself means two morphs, so two types. But as Dr. Wenjanek and I think you, Dr. Pritt, <laughs> taught us as fellows, they are yeast in the beast and mold in the cold. So they have a yeast form when they infect humans or other animals. But in the environment, they are a mold form. So they are, both of these are found again in the environment. Blastomycosis is typically associated with kind of moist environments, dead leaves. Decomposing matter. Decomposing, like wooden yes. leaves, yes. Right, decomposing matter. But interestingly, it's really hard to culture from the environment. So we don't actually know exactly where this fungus is growing. Similarly with histoplasmosis, also in the environment, but also associated more so with bird excrement, bats in particular. So one of the high-risk groups of people for histoplasmosis infections are spelunkers or individuals that go into caves Yeah, where there's lots of bat excrement. So that's really what we associate histoplasmosis with. And then where are they found? It's really Classically, we think of these two along the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys, but increasingly their region of endemicity has grown and expanded into the Midwestern states, kind of the Dakotas, all the way down along the Mississippi River and then in onto the Eastern coast, and then all the way into Canada in British Columbia, lots, lots of blastomycosis there. So it's a wide risk area for inspection. Yeah, something to worry about. Certainly where we are, we are in a prime endemic area and mm -hmm. Wisconsin as well. So how common are these infections and uh, what kind of symptoms do they cause? Yeah, so not too common. I think the latest statistics from uh, the CDC put it about two to three cases per 100,000 individuals. So, so pretty rare. That being said, the risk is much higher if you live in an endemic area. We see, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 20-ish cases of histoplasma and blastomyces a year in our clinic in the states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, probably somewhere 50 to 60 cases a year. So not too many, but they can be pretty serious. So in otherwise healthy individuals, if you're exposed, you might be entirely asymptomatic. But for those of us that are higher risk, have any sort of kind of immunocompromised immune system, risk is higher. Typically, patients will present with pneumonia, respiratory type symptoms, so cough, fever, muscle aches, 
Yeah, you know, I have been involved in several cases of really serious blastomycosis. And like you said, immunocompromised patients, but I've been surprised to even see otherwise healthy adults, like healthy young people who had very, very serious necrotizing pulmonary disease. And now there's been a recent outbreak in Michigan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So in a paper mill, actually, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan recently had a major outbreak. I believe it's the largest industrial outbreak of blastomycosis in the United States, probably in, in North America, really. To date, they have roughly 100 individuals that are suspected to have blastomycosis. Roughly 20 or so have been confirmed. Over 75 are presumed to be infected which is a lot of people. So in Michigan annually, there's about 26 cases reported. Wow. In 2019, the CDC reported 240 total cases of blastomycosis. So you can really kind of put that in perspective when you have one facility that has now roughly 100 cases of blastomycosis. It is an astronomical outbreak. And one of those infections has resulted in a fatality. So it's it's pretty serious. And I guess you could say that there would be a potential risk if you're working with wood, at least if it's decomposing wood and leaves. As you already mentioned, that's one of the areas where we think blastomyces grows. Right, right. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health from the CDC, I believe, has visited the paper mill and has been conducting a variety of investigations to try and see where did this really come from. They haven't been able to pinpoint it yet. The factory has been shut down for the time being to do additional deep cleans and investigations. But again, kind of what we talked about earlier, it's been really difficult to pinpoint where these infections occur, where the exposure, I should say, occurs. Sure. That makes sense. Well, for everyone listening that may be wondering about diagnosis, since these can be serious infections, can you tell us how blastomycosis and histoplasmosis are usually diagnosed in the laboratory? Sure. So there's both direct methods and indirect methods. So the gold standard, the reference method, right, for detection of both of these would still be culture, culture from respiratory fluids, culture from tissue biopsies, blood, so if you grow it, you've diagnosed it. The problem with culture, though, is that it can take a while, anywhere from a couple of weeks to longer, depending on the fungal burden from the sample that you um, that you collected. So culture is good, but it takes a long time. And sometimes you might not recover it in culture. So increasingly, uh, laboratories are developing molecular assays to detect genetic material from these organisms, which has been an improvement from a turnaround time for sure, but the sensitivity of these assays is still imperfect. And so because of that, there's a number of indirect methods for detection of these organisms, which are based on testing of blood and urine for either um, antibodies or antibodies to the organisms or circulating antigen that's been released from the organism. The antibody detection assays, interestingly enough, the ones that we use in the lab were initially developed in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, but they are still the best we have from a sensitivity and specificity perspective. But you can imagine in immunocompromised patients, the sensitivity of those is not, not ideal, and it can take some time for antibodies to develop. So the last method, um, antigen detection, 
actually technically still a direct detection method, but it can be done in blood or urine, again, detecting galactomannan that's released from these fungal organisms. And the assays that, are, that have been developed actually have quite good sensitivity and for the most part specificity, with the exception that histoplasma and blastomyces, the galactomannan from these two organisms, is actually quite similar. So you get cross-reactivity between the histoplasma and blastomyces antigen detection assays. Interesting. And I think of histoplasma and blastomyces antigen as being one of the go-to tests because it's fairly easy to collect the sample type, blood or urine, and it's fairly rapid as well. So what has your lab done in regards to these tests? And I know you have a new test that you've just released for blastomyces and histoplasma. Can you tell us about that as well? We do. So because of this known cross-reactivity between the galactomannans of the two organisms, we actually did a look-back study to see amongst patients that have both a histoplasma and a blastomyces serum antigen ordered, how frequently are those results concordant? And for our patient population, it was over 95% of patients had the same results on the histoplasma and blastomyces individual assays. Wow. Um, which is significant. So just because you test positive by a histoplasma antigen assay does not necessarily mean you have histoplasma. It could be blastomyces. Thankfully, the treatment for these two organisms is quite similar. So knowing which one it is would not really change therapy, which is important. So given those two facts, we have developed a single assay that would detect both histoplasma and blastomyces antigen using one test. We wouldn't be able to tell you whether it's histoplasma or blastomyces, but frankly, neither can the other assays. Right. The separate test couldn't tell you that either. Either. So we have a single test for serum to detect histoplasma blastomyces antigen. And one thing that performance-wise, it is equivalent to what we were doing in the past, but it is coming to us with... um, it's a significant cost savings uh, for patients. So instead of paying for two tests that are essentially giving you the same answer, we now have one single assay. So it's cutting the testing cost basically in half for those two agents. Yeah, I think that that's great. It's keeping in mind what the patient is paying and yet still delivering a high quality result. And I know you did some look back and can you give us just some general numbers of the total cost savings Uh, that would go to our providers and ultimately our patients? Yep. So we did a look back of over a roughly 14-month period. And during that time range, we found that we tested about 12,000 patients for histoplasma and blastomyces antigen in urine. And a third of those patients were tested for both antigen to both organisms. So if we were to have a single assay instead of both of those tests, our cost savings over that time frame would have been roughly half a million dollars. So it's really quite a significant saving both for the laboratory, but more importantly for the patient. And again, we are not decreasing accuracy of the results that we're reporting. Well, we talk about the importance of test stewardship and how we as the laboratorians, the subject matter experts, play such an important role 
And this is such a great example of how we can look at the way these tests perform and make recommendations that are positive for our patients and provide the answers that our colleagues need. And it's very important for us to take this role to be partners with the individuals that are ordering our tests so that we can create these types of tests and testing algorithms. Exactly, exactly. And I think the other thing that we did as a laboratory, because this is such a change in practice, is ordering one test rather than two. We did get input from our clinician colleagues as well. You know, a lot of education was provided both for our internal practice and the external practice. And so far, it's been, I think, well received. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Thiel, and sharing all of this great information. I'm sure we will have you back in the future for another episode, hopefully not on COVID, maybe something else in the future. So again, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.